Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders, CEOs, and investors to help you scale up business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is Andrew Butt, the founder and CEO at Enable. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. My pleasure. So you have uh, an amazing story. You you started the company in December of 2016, so almost seven years uh, next December. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, you started in the UK. You have moved move to, to the Valley, where the ones who have the privilege to see the YouTube uh video will be able to to see your background the ones who are mm -hmm. listening through the other podcast platforms will not be able to to see it uh but you we have here an amazing uh story 500 plus employees uh more than 100 percent year over year uh growth uh amazing series a b and c already uh raised being the last year the 94 million Series C um, completed, right? So yeah. with, with uh, over 10 million plus ARR and, and growing uh, fast. So I think it's it's a good introduction overall to, to the kind of business that we'll cover uh, today and, and, and the amazing journey that's, that, um, that, you, uh, that you are going through, uh, but tell us more about you, your background and, and enable and um, set up, set us up for, for success and for, for the oh. next hour. Okay. Okay. No pressure there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was always kind of drawn to computing as a child and, um, you know, building computer programs. And I was also very drawn to business and my father ran accountancy firms, so he had like a CPA practice in the UK and worked with lots of small business owners. Uh, so I combined those interests at a young age and was kind of building software uh, for, for anyone I could. And it was all, all kind of business software from day one. I was probably quite boring. I didn't do gaming or, you know, <laughs> anything like that. It was all business software. Nice. And then my other real hobby that I often talk about is flying. So I originally wanted to be an airline pilot and uh, I, I, I was lucky to meet a flying school who I could hang out at the weekend and build software for them and also meet Easy. some fascinating entrepreneurs who were learning to fly and, and had great businesses. So that really kind of set me up to meet people and learn about business. And, and, and then I remember when the web started to really take off in the late 90s, 2000, um, that's when I started to build web software, internet-based software, which of course was a novelty in those days. And and the story goes on, but that that's how we that's how I got started. Yeah, and it's fair to say that this is your almost your third business, right? So and and your first business was uh, called Enable Info Matrix, which is kind of a uh, coming back to to Enable. Um, so you you were able also to to exit that that business to uh, sovereign capital private equity in 2010 correct anything yes. that you'd like to add there yeah i mean i think my background was always in service businesses uh, before i kind of started this one and and came out to silicon valley and really focused on building the products that we have now and so what that meant was we were building software for other people and and we were hiring kind of software engineers and were meeting lots of fascinating companies who all wanted us to build software for them. And Infomatrix was uh, actually a client of ours. So we were building software for them and mm -hmm. they were experts in their space, which was was property information, construction compliance, health and safety compliance, this type of thing. And and I still talk to those guys today. They, they're great people. And it, it ended up where... Um, I invested in the business with one of my uh, partners and joint, you know, created like a joint entity and we were building software for the company. And then we became investors and directors in the company as well and grew that one. Uh, and, and you're right, it was eventually acquired and, and it was part of a buy and build strategy. So Sovereign were buying different yeah. companies, sticking them together, yeah. and they've created a really fantastic group as a result of that. Love it. And after that, you... You are also the conf the co-founder and managing director of another entity, uh, the DCS Group. Uh, I know that you have a, an amazing story that you were able to bootstrap, enable. So your last business and the, the business that we are covering today, of course, 
from a services business and then you invested all the profits on building the product organization, the SaaS organization that you have today um at uh, at enable which which we know it it's which we know it's it's something that a lot of founders tried before and it's not an easy path to to go through i'm not sure if this previous organization that's what has been transformed into the enable product business or if it is even another business before that <laughs> well yeah no, no you're absolutely right so so dcs group is now the largest distributor in the uk and uh, it works with brands like Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and Gillette, and so on. And uh, the founder and owner of that business is a, an entrepreneur called Dennis Short, and he's a very, very successful entrepreneur. Um, him and I actually met at the flying school, believe it or not. So he was learning to fly, um, and uh, uh, I was hanging around, you know, building software for, for them. And mm -hmm. and so we got together, and, and uh, uh, he actually... Um, made me an offer and we created a, a company called DCS e-commerce, which kind of sat within the DCS group and was building yeah. software. And it was DCS, which really was the inspiration for what we do today, because they use these, these things called rebates, uh, B2B rebates in their mm -hmm. industry. And that was a significant kind of growth driver for DCS. And there was no software to manage that well. So that kind of eventually led us to build the enable product that we have today and it was kind of incubated within within dcs and this was a services business so and then when yes. you start enable it already starts as a product um business exactly so so dcs e-commerce that we created is, is a joint yeah. venture if you like between dennis and myself and it was kind yeah. of created a dcs e-commerce yeah that was services so building software for lots of people bespoke software custom software and right. and then eventually we built the the product in that company um, and then we kind of uh, separated that out into enable at that point when the product was ready sounds sounds amazing so and then we got to december of 2016 and and tell tell us more about what is enable uh, about yeah. and yeah absolutely yeah so enable is a b2b saas platform that is used by manufacturers, distributors, and retailers all over the world in almost every industry. And it's really about how you create trading agreements between yourself and other companies in the supply chain and how you use um, and manage rebates. And a rebate we've defined is any funds that flow back through the supply chain. So typically, if I spend money with you, um, then when I hit a certain target, you'll give me some money back. And this, right. it turns out, this is a huge, huge kind of phenomenon that goes on everywhere, but it was kind of almost under the radar until a few years ago. And these kind of rebate programs have become a lot more complicated and a lot more surgical. So a simple example, maybe a few years ago, you know, if I buy $100,000 of product mm -hmm. from you, you give me $2,000 back. That's really easy and simple. You could do that no problem but now it's much more product specific uh, there's different tiers so if i buy a hundred thousand of product a and i do that within two months i might get five percent back but if i buy a different product and i get something else and it becomes very very complicated so we saw that this was actually responsible for all of the margin all of the profit margin in a distributor and a retailer and it was also the single biggest cost that a manufacturer had and the whole thing was just not that effective. It, it, it didn't work well. There wasn't modern software. So, so Enable is the kind of modern cloud platform to do all of that uh, across the supply chain. Yeah. And, and just remind us, so what is kind of the ideal customer profile of, of, of Enable? Sure. So really, it would be any distributor or retailer or manufacturer where... Um, they are certainly physical goods. So it is yeah. across literally, you can imagine automotive components. It's across, you know, pharmaceuticals, right. um, office supplies, you know, construction materials. So all of these physical things. And even now we're in non-physical as well. So so it's it's very right. broad. It's it's I think people thought right. it was a vertical kind of solution at first, but actually it goes across so many it's industries. Horizontal. It's okay. Much more horizontal. Right. So it's 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 really the category is kind of rebate management right so and then you have different sectors who are almost sector agnostic but of course sectors who, who have to deal with rebates right as as you were um explaining um 
And okay, in terms of yeah. the size of the companies, I think that you started more with enterprise, correct? That's right. Yeah. So we started because in the early days we were bootstrapping and like you said, using yeah. the profits from the, the services company to fund this. So we had to get big contracts because <laughs> we had to pay right. the pay the payroll. So we were working with very large companies that had huge amounts of these rebates. And then if we could uh, kind of save them two or three percent even, you know, that would be still a, a large amount of money. And, and that's where we started. And then as we've grown, we've kind of actually gone up market and down market. So we're winning bigger customers and we're winning smaller customers. Okay. Um, but I think, I guess, just to explain a bit more, you know, yeah. rebates are, are really the currency of the supply chain. It's how the supply chain yeah. operates. Just like sales commission in a company drives a sales team. Right. Uh, rebates, rebates drive um, distributors and retailers in the supply chain. So you're right that the category we're building is, is rebate management. Uh, but the broader mission of Enable is to enable trusted trading relationships to serve customers better together. So that means really just helping the supply chain to work better by using these types of agreements. Got it. And so you were, we were, we were, we were talking about the category, the the industries that you started more with. Uh, let's say maybe mid market, high mid market. Yeah. And and then you went upstream and downstream uh, with enterprise and maybe uh, the mid market and the small business uh, side as well, right? So yes. And um, something that is also interesting is that you you started international from day one with English speaking countries like UK, US, Canada, uh, Australia, for instance, correct? Yes. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. So we started purely in the UK. But we were very quickly getting inquiries from all over the world. And you're right, that US was a big source of, of inbound and then Canada and Australia and and others. But those were big ones. And so um, that was from an early stage. And, and for example, companies in the US were saying to us, we don't really want to use you because you're not in the US, but we can't find anything in the US that does what you can do. Um, so they they sort of Great signed up power. anyway, <laughs> yeah. And, and we were we were kind of providing UK hours support, which wasn't very good because our US customers in, in the middle of the day, everyone everyone went home. Uh, but yeah. it didn't take me too long to realize that I needed to set up in the US, for example. And and now we're in we're in other countries as well. Um, but you know, we we got we got quite far bootstrapping from the UK and serving those international companies. And in in those initial times, did you start more East Coast? oriented or did you start serving almost inbound any any customer that was coming from the US? <laughs> I, I think we would take anything inbound that we could get as long as there was a good product fit. So so obviously yeah. we wanted to make sure the product would work well, but we we would almost just do whatever it took to win a customer anywhere in the world if they if they came to yeah. us. Yeah, I'm just asking this because sometimes we have this, you know, especially if we are based in in the UK or in CET in more Germany, France, Spain. Um, yeah, it's minus eight Pacific time, minus five um, Eastern yeah. time, right? So at minus five, we are still able to have a 3 p.m. meeting, which would be kind of 10 a.m. for uh, for the East Coast or 9 yeah. a.m. at 2 p.m. in in the UK. But then we might have a meeting at 8 a.m. Pacific time and 4 p.m. Yes. Um, the UK. It starts being a little bit more difficult, the window that we have in order yes. to talk to the customer. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So that's a good point. I mean, I think, like you said, in terms of inbound inquiries, we were just taking them wherever they came from if we had a good, a good product fit. Um, but then I think in terms of setting up our company and opening our office, we really thought about that point quite deeply. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm I'm quite kind of public in the fact that I'm a huge kind of supporter and advocate of Silicon Valley. And look, you can build a software company anywhere in the world and you can raise money anywhere in the world. So I'm not saying uh, you cannot do it another way. But what I looked at is when I looked at all of the best software companies or not all of them, but many of them, they were kind of headquartered in the Bay Area. And when I spoke to investors in different parts of the world, there was no doubt that West Coast investors really kind of got the vision and were willing to kind of invest and and really wanted to create something significant and impactful uh, rather mm -hmm. than, than something kind of more uh, kind of moderate. And so my view was if I'm going to relocate and, and move country from the UK to the US, 
to build a software company, then I, I'm definitely going to go to the West Coast and we'll figure that stuff out. We'll figure the time zone and the meeting times out, but really wanted to be based here. And that that's definitely served us very, very well. Um, so it was, I think for us, it was the right decision to jump straight from the UK to the West Coast. Yeah. And we'll get back here later just to keep everyone uh, following the show. Uh, why the, the the typical decision, okay, let's go to California and to the Valley. And now should we stay in the Valley or go directly to the city center to uh, San Francisco? Um, and also you move it in, in 2020 before or almost at the same time of, of your uh, A round, right? That we will yes. also discuss uh, more a bit later but let's let's give a step back around this transition right of you know um having a very successful services business and uh, you know having the commitment to move forward to start a product uh business in let's say in the same industry or in the same category uh, but with a, a very different mindset compared to a services business much more product size business so why did you decide to, you know, take the what was kind of stable and maybe a, a very good business to to risk it all and, uh, and start <laughs> and 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 go for yeah. maybe much more potential in terms of the growth of the business, but also starting from scratch again, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think I've been doing the previous thing for a long time, and it was in different forms. So we had, you know, a couple of different companies that we built, but essentially it was that formally described of build it steadily, profitably, you know, grow carefully. And, you know, frankly, it, that was very rewarding and learned a lot and had great customers and also had a great lifestyle because uh, that it, it was yeah. profitable and, um, you know, life was pretty good. But it was also clear that it could never be big. It could never be, and it could never have a huge impact. You know, it would never be, for example, category creating. It would just be another services company. And it's kind yeah. of, you might say it was successful. And it was it was relatively successful, but it was, it was small scale. So I yeah. kind of could see the potential to build a significant product in this space and build this category and look to other software companies, especially again in the, in the Bay Area who, who literally were building and going public uh, and I thought this, I really think this is something we could do. And if I don't try this, then I'll regret it. I'll look back later and wonder if we could have done it. And having done this services thing for many, many years, I, I've got to do it. You know, I'm getting getting old as well. So right. now is the time to do it. And of course, I spoke to friends and peers and advisors and I said, here's my options. And they all unanimously said, look, you need to go for this because it looks like a great proposition and you, you've got every chance of success. And again, you'll regret it if you don't do it. How did you plan the transition? So did you sold um, did you sell the the services business to and, and then with the profits you you started the product business? Did you um, close it the services business? Uh, I assume it was it was also the same co-founder who started the services business that yes. went forward to start the product business. So is he there? Right? Yeah. So yeah, was, absolutely. So so yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> Not easy. <laughs> So, so, so we did a careful transition and I remember I came out in 20, let me get this right. I came out in 2018 to the Bay area and started meeting some investors then, and then got a clear idea of what our trajectory would need to be to raise a series yeah. A. And, and then it took me, I think my wife said to me, you've got six months to do this and make it happen. And uh, in the end, it took me about 18 months, not six months to really, um, you know, focus on the product, you know, build that momentum and that trajectory and then transition away the services. And we did that in a couple of ways. So, so um, you know, we, we did divest a couple of, of business units and, and they were taken over and acquired or whatever. And, and then we did also kind of close down some of it over time, um, you know, and even after the Series A, for example, we didn't, we, we, we still continued for, say, a year just to gradually wind down some of those services. And we didn't want to disappoint customers in a big way. So we gave them time and we helped them to make other arrangements. Uh, so it was really a combination of divesting a few things and then transitioning. And the key thing is we transitioned our people because all of our people, all of our engineers were spending some of their time building our own products and then some of their time building products for the people and we retained basically all of them we just basically moved them from being say 25 percent our product to 100 percent our product over the course yeah. of maybe one year 
So was it still the same legal entity or did you create a new legal entity to, yeah. to do the transition? Uh, we created a new one and the main reason for that was we wanted it to be a US company and it, okay. before it was a UK company. So we created Makes a brand sense. new US entity and uh, then we actually made the, the new brand. We, we kind of we kind of moved the UK to be a subsidiary, so slightly revised structure. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. And and can you just give us a flavor of what was kind of without disclosing any private information, but what was kind of the size of of those businesses uh, of yeah. those two services business when you decided to move to the product business? Absolutely. I mean, I would say um, we probably were uh, around. Um, probably around say 5 million of revenue as a, as a profitable services business. And of that, uh, you know, uh, let's say two, two million, maybe a bit more, 2 million was recurring kind of, uh, you know, revenue. Uh, revenue yeah. And then 3 million was, was kind of just one-off services. So that was the, that was about what the point we were at. And that was after selling the enable Informatrix business, which we did a few years before that you, you noted, but the, the kind of services business we had at the time yeah. was about 5 million revenue. Got it. And, and in terms of ad count, where where were you landing at the time? Uh, I would say it was about um, 50 people, probably at the point where we, okay. uh, 2018, you know, again, I, I'd come out to the yep. Bay Area and yeah, about 50 people. So I would assume kind of the 20% a bit the margin, so uh, yeah. reasonable margins and great business, even able to be sold by a by a, a nice multiple, right? As you did your your first one, um, and having in mind the sometimes the software margins are even higher, right? Depending yes. on, on the moment, if you are investing in new product development or not, right? More aggressively or less aggressively. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe twenty percent is a little bit generous, but let's call it double <laughs> digit. Double, double, double digit EBITDA margin. Well, it's it's really nice to you know that nowadays we are also talking more about profitability and uh, and cash generation and I think this was also a a nice transition of your mindset right so especially at the time where the markets were very aggressive and especially until twenty one or um, yeah twenty twenty one maybe beginning of twenty twenty two and and then we we saw this more this downturn and investors being more. Um, protective or wanting to see um, no growth at all costs, a little bit more conservative in terms of, of burn. So how was this mindset of having an operation under control, you know, being profitable, um, not having all recurring revenue, but having services uh, revenue, some stability, um, also at count 50 people, that's, that's nice. That's already a, a good structure, but not also too big to to manage not not with mm. all those growth pains that also come with 80 and 100 people and then 250 and 500 people yes um now so how has been your mindset shift to be able to deal with the two different realities right sure absolutely so and i think first of all there were lots of things that were good about the previous model but the kind of uh clarity of of vision and uh, that we were so excited about what we could build in our product that we just kind of had to do it i mean it wasn't for me it wasn't in the end yeah. it wasn't a difficult decision because it was just so clear this is what we had to do and the opportunity was in front of us and then i think you're right that transitioning from a, a bootstrap situation where you know uh, we had a very limited bank balance and and we had to be very very careful and and I I, rem I remember I used to sign off every single payment to any supplier and every single purchase and I even used to look at the debtors every every day and say who owes us money and well, how are we collecting this money to then one where suddenly you've got I mean, a Series A we raised seventeen million dollars and so your bank balance goes from close to zero to 17 million <laughs> uh, uh, and, and then the investors are obviously saying you know um where are you going to actually deploy this this um, right. these funds uh and i remember you know a couple of investors not the ones we ended up going with but prior to that uh, said one of our concerns andrew is you're so you're, you're such a frugal bootstrapped founder that we're not sure you'd actually be able to spend the money and in, in a, you know and actually get your head around a burn situation right. i don't know so that was interesting um but i think i have to say once we got started we shut down the services and we were really kind of going full speed mm -hmm. ahead with with the product 
we started to burn quite you know it, we did start to burn and and then as we took on some really talented people uh, that had done this before and so i'd say we had really good engineering uh, uh, and really good products and some happy early customers but we didn't really have many sales people and when we hired some very strong sales leadership they 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 knew what was required in terms of investment and the burn started to increase in a controlled way but but it did increase and and then you're right what happened not that long later was then investors saying actually we should think about our efficiency and can we burn less so it was like that cycle of right. not burning any not burning anything and concerns about that we wouldn't actually use the funds you know uh, right. to oh actually maybe you're burning a bit bit too much can you burn less so it's been an interesting yeah. cycle and in a, in a certain way, you also transitioned for a product organization and you start divesting the services side. So, which means that you didn't raise a pre-seed round, neither a seed round, I assume. You you already started almost um, with with maybe the, the two, 2.5 million. So, uh, and then you get to the point that you are almost able to, you know, to keep growing a product organization without raising money. So it's it's not kind of a discussion about I need to move from a services to a product organization that is more scalable, but I don't need to raise money if if I if I want to grow at a certain pace. Maybe if I want to speed up and win the category or go to a larger or to a bigger vision, then I need to raise that capital because it's not something that you are just raising the pre-seed and the seed round to get your first uh, million in revenue. No, you you are deciding already that you are raising a, a series A in, in February of 20, which is a 17 yeah. million round, as you said, um, with, with, again, product market fit achieved already and uh, almost maybe aligning or fine-tuning your go-to-market fit, right? Yes. That's all true. That's all true. And so we already had that revenue and customers. But I think the reason we raised in the first place was to genuinely be able to build a category and build a significant global and impactful business. So mm -hmm. so I had options. I could have kind of continued bootstrapping uh, and going, going very slowly. I could yeah. have raised a little bit of investment, maybe in the UK where I was more kind of, okay, we're raising a couple of million maybe and that will give us a bit more potential and you know allow us to go a bit faster but still you know it's never going to be be a, a new category and then on the other extreme was you know come to the bay area and really demonstrate how this can be a this could be a hundred million of revenue and i think in those days three years ago that was the key thing can, can you prove to an investor that this absolutely can be a hundred million you know at least Right. And I think now the bar's a lot higher and, we, you know, we've made a lot of progress anyway. So now maybe I should say a billion, <laughs> you know, right. can this be a, bil a billion dollar revenue company? And the answer is yes, it absolutely can be. But there's no way you would do that if you were going very, very slowly. You, you, you have to you have to kind of really invest. And, and that's why um, I chose to invest and invest, yeah. you know, in the end, raise quite significant amounts of capital. And just to highlight, I think this is a great uh, ambition to have. You are not talking about the billion valuation, the unicorn valuation. You are talking about the billion in revenue. Revenue, so correct. Going Absolutely. to the next stage, which would be to go from a dead end of million to the one B in revenue. Uh, yeah. Maybe being a listed company or not, maybe a, a private company going for, for IPO. Oh, yeah. Scaling. And I, I think that this is just another great thing about about the Bay Area. And I'm not I'm not on commission or being paid to sell the <laughs> sell the region. But but, you know, one of the founders who really <laughs> inspires me uh, is um, Michelle Zatlin, who founded or co-founded Cloudflare. OK, and mm -hmm. and she yeah. literally founded it, uh, scaled it to around a billion in revenue now. And it's still growing very fast. And she's still the COO of the company, um, you know, and that's just amazing. And, 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 you know, that's the one I've spoken mm -hmm. to a couple of times. And then I also was with the CEO of uh, WorkEva uh, the other day, uh, mm -hmm. who and that now is that now again is, is in the many hundreds of millions, maybe I can't remember, maybe it's 600 million of revenue. And these people, you know, this, this is, is absolutely achievable it's and good. doable and that, yeah, the, the people here uh, is they're very accessible. 
So uh, I, I think, you know, wh when I was thinking about can we ever get to 100 million, 100 million in revenue, to be honest, that seems, you know, it seemed like a really big number and I wasn't completely yeah. sure. But now I, I, I do think, you know, we, we can get this to 1 billion of revenue. I mean, it doesn't mean it's guaranteed or and I think it will take time to do, but it's definitely doable. Yeah. It's, it's the benefit of having the right peers around you and, and people with experience who have done this before and being able to first see them doing it and saying and thinking to yourself, it is possible, right? Which which already helps. And uh, when sometimes where we are in other countries where the economies are much smaller and uh, yeah. yeah, almost those people are not accessible, accessible as you were saying, it seems yeah. kind of a, of a dream. Uh, something exactly. that is, is not realistic to, to aim yeah. for, right? It is so true. And, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of, uh, uh, you know, proud to be British and really like the UK, yeah. but the culture is very different. And and I'd say there was no idea that that kind of potential would be possible where I came from. But here, that's that's totally possible. And, and that's made a huge positive impact in being able to be around those people, learn from those people, talk to those people, and then yeah. apply that kind of thinking into our business. Just have this think big mentality and i think that that's also a, a a difficult combination to have right is to stay confident humble and at the same time yeah humble and confident and, and being able to take the risk and have the courage to think big because of course it's it's much easier to you know to to define a, a smaller vision uh, than you know putting ourselves to an uncomfortable, very big vision, and and of course our chances of failing are much higher. But uh, that that's the good part. There is people appreciate that you are exposing mm. yourself and trying to do something big, right? Yeah, I think really so. Fast. I mean, I think the other thing is to is to break it down into into kind of time horizons. And I've done exactly yeah. this. So to right. say, okay, we definitely can be at this kind of position long term. It's definitely it. doable and possible, and you know maybe probable, but that's a long time away. So so what does let's say the two years you know leading up to that look like? And then how do we get to that? kind of stage what do we need to do right now and i think having really good data and and the data is essential so i think we both would agree you can't just have a big vision and then and then that's it i mean right. you've got to uh, yeah. you've got to be able to kind of uh, yeah track the journey ahead and then look at what kind of data is relevant and meaningful and you've got to be able to justify that and say this is why this is meaningful and then track to it and 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 that's what we do so we still have very very yeah. kind of major monthly and quarterly tracking to, to make sure we're going the right way and and if things are going in the wrong direction then we we will adjust course you know quickly yeah and andrew let's get back to the to the fundraising part so in february of 2020 you raised the 17 million a round then in june of 21 kind of almost a year later a bit more 15 months or 16 uh, you raised the B round, which was uh, how much? Uh, 45, 45, 45 million. Yeah, I was just yeah. doing the calculation about the total yeah. that you said. Uh, and now, as, as I said, in October of uh, 22, you raised the 94 million uh, C round, which, which gets a total of 156 million raised so far. Also from June to October, and now again, the... Um, 14, 15, or 16, uh, yeah, 14 in this case, uh, months. So, which is kind yeah. of almost every year, uh, every 12 to 15 months, raising the the next round. Uh, I assume during those stages, you were able to keep growing more than 100% year over year. That's yes. the only way to, to keep raising in such a short period of, of time, right? Kind of following the, the playbook of growth. Yes. Uh, which which is not uh, easy uh, at all. I know that you have some ideas and some convictions about how to manage the timing and the size of the rounds, also how the, um, the impact of the valuation can have in your in your round. So if you could kind of summarize, I know it's it's a tough question to ask in such a short period of time, but some of your lessons learned about fundraising, um, yeah, it would be great. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I think the Series A was the most difficult of the three because, um, and we've covered a lot of this already, haven't we? That that I kind of turned up here from the UK, 
uh, um, and I didn't even have a US company, you know, barely had a US bank account and was then kind of knocking on doors saying, this is what we're doing. Nobody had heard of rebates and didn't really see that it was an important or big space like they do now, by the way. And it's now now recognized as being, uh, you know, really, really big. And so that was quite challenging. And and, you know, we had to get from this kind of bootstrap situation to some capital on the balance sheet, because otherwise we we would have we wouldn't have survived because we were shutting down the services business. And, you know, that that was what was producing our funding. So that was just step one. And we were very fortunate that we met, uh, uh, you know, Menlo Ventures, for example. They led the Series A and the people there, Steve Sloan, who's on our board and Venki Ganesan, who's been at Menlo a long time. They They really saw the vision and they had that vision to invest very early so i'm you know, always eternally eternally grateful to them um so that that was that was the first stage and at that point again we had very little go to market so we had the product we had some customers and we were kind of hiring our first salespeople in the us like literally the first one the second one the third one but i think a big turning point was we we uh, brought an amazing um revenue leader on board and he actually had been at another menlo funded company mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry Bruner, and mm-hmm. and and this company had done extremely well, and had just been acquired by by Workday, uh, and and I Amazing. think he there's no doubt he had contributed in a big way to to that growth, and and he was a very experienced revenue leader. So to cut a long story short, I was again very fortunate that I managed to attract Jerry to come to Enable, and and he said, right, this is huge potential, but we need to invest significantly in setting up the whole kind of revenue team and all the functions that go with that. And that's going to require, you know, going at a faster pace. Um, now, fortunately, that also attracted other investors to come to us and said, oh, you know, um, we can see what Unable's doing, really interesting. And also we, we, we've seen Jerry and what he did, uh, you know, with with the previous company. So um, that was a big market signal. And so we actually then had investors coming to us at the B. And it was very similar at the C. Uh, because once again, we were we like you said, we were creating that performance. We were growing um, over 100% year over year, and word spreads quickly. So with the B and the C, we just had people coming to us, and it got to the point where we didn't necessarily need to raise, but it's saying, uh, you know, what could we do? How could we go faster? How could we build a stronger business? And also, um, if you can raise with minimal dilution, uh, and you've got you know um, people making those offers, then you know, it's often a good idea to take take that capital. Got it. And something that you also added to this equation are the advantages of moving to, to the Valley, especially some years ago. Now we are seeing more and more people coming from other places, but, but still the US leads there. Is the number of operators and senior leaders that you have available in terms of the talent well, uh, yeah. pipeline? No, no question. Yeah, there's no comparison. Yeah, there's, given the there's no comparison. And, and yeah, some of these people that we've brought on, there's just no way, in my opinion, and again, I could be wrong, yeah. but in my opinion, I think if, if we hadn't been here and in the ecosystem and able to meet people and see them face to face, then um, we wouldn't have found and been able to hire the people that we did. And and we know that as as a CEO at that stage when especially when we are scaling up, it's it's all about having the right people on the right seats and in the leadership team, and then they are able. And usually there is again a, a lot of humility coming from the CEO to to understand and and follow, uh, kind of setting up the vision and and the direction, but then letting people tell you how you should structure the different functions and and letting yes. it go and letting them lead right because. They've, they've done it before, so they know yes. what to tell you. Just need to get, to to provide the overall vision and, and be the guardian of the mission, vision, and values of the company. Yes, yes, exactly. And you reminded me that you asked me earlier about how was it transitioning from fifty people to over five hundred people. And yeah. in in so in some ways, it's actually not very different because, to your point just now, we've got such strong people. So so I've got a very strong president and CRO, I've got a very strong chief operating officer, you know, CFO and, and others. And and they are running their teams, which are significant in size. And 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 I've trusted them to do that. That, you know, they're better than I am, um, at least in those functions. <laughs> so right. so then for me, yes, like we're in our all hands meeting, we have five hundred and however many people rather than fifty. But but on a day to day basis, we've got very strong managers who are kind of running the functions. This is a very nice insight. I've I've just interviewed recently Joel uh, Trammell, 
Uh, he's called kind of the American CEO, the author of the book, the CEO operating system. And so and I was asking him, so um, he was able to lead two VC backed companies and sold them, uh, bootstrap two companies as well, led a, a public company as the CEO. And he was saying exactly what he was saying, kind of a, a 200 uh, team uh, size is, is almost as leading a, a 3000 uh, team member company because you are still dealing with the executive team and with the leadership team, right? So, yes. so maybe what is more, what is a little bit different is for the the CRO or the CMO for the CFO or the shift people, because then they have more layers that they need to be able to coordinate. But the CEO is still talking to those uh, five to seven people that are the, the C-suite that, that they need to lead if, if they are doing it properly, of course, and not trying to be everywhere. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's, it's, it's a privileged position to be in because yeah. I can kind of, uh, go and speak to whoever I want to obviously and and go direct to people who are experts in their area and 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 uh, talk to them but then I'm not managing them on a day-to-day basis you know that's the, they report into someone else so I get the benefit right. of people's expertise but without having to manage them I think what has changed more is is you know originally when it was just my co-founder and me there were no investors and there was no board really right. um so so then of course there was a board but the board was simple because the board just had the investors on it who invested in the series a and and that was the that was it mm-hmm. uh, and then of course you start to get to okay you've got your board you've got your series a b c investors who might be on that board then you've got other investors that are not on the board so you need to manage mm-hmm. them and 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 those kind of stakeholder groups of of you know are going up in size and complexity so yes. in a way that has been a bigger adjustment than just the number of people that we employ so it's it's really we we are talking that the CEO is always managing a marketplace, right? So we have always the customers that and employees, and and nowadays we really understand that we need to have a developed position for both. Again, and that's why culture is and the vision and the mission and the values are are so important, right? But at the same time, we also need to be able to balance as the CEO the interests of the shareholders, the the customers and the employees and. If any of them is being abused, it will not yep. be sustainable, right? So if shareholders are not happy, uh, or if shareholders are happy, but customers and employees are having an awful experience, it will not work. If customers are super happy, but employees are having a shitty day and, and shareholders are not seeing the benefits, it doesn't yep. work. Or we can even say, let's say that shareholders are happy and the customers are happy, but the employees are not happy at all. Yeah. It will be very yeah. difficult to sustain that business for a long period of time, right? That's true. Uh, so keeping it all in balance. And um, I think for me, you know, the, I always say the purpose of a business is to serve customers. That's the reason a business exists and to deliver more value than it, the business is being paid. Uh, so so if you if you pay us $100 a year, you need to get at least $200 a year of value. And also you need to be happy, which is more subjective, isn't it? So if you're on, you know, yeah. so that that's the main thing. And then if you can achieve that, then the business is there as a, as a model to replicate customer success. So we've made you successful, you're happy, and you're getting 100% ROI. How can we replicate that to a thousand customers? And then, then it's very mission driven of we're on this mission to create all this customer value and you can attract employees who really are excited about that mission. And, and then you can attract investors as well. But that's, that's how I think about yeah. it. So as we promised it in the beginning, and, and time is flying uh, very aggressively. So why then you, you decided to move from the UK to California and, and raise your A round um, in the Valley. So why did you decide to, to be located in San Francisco and not uh, in, in the Valley, let's say? Sure. Yeah. So initially, we, my wife and I were going to settle down in, in the valley and we came from the middle of the UK where we had lots of space. And so uh, we, we weren't drawn to a city. Uh, right. But a lot of the advice I had was um, so there's so much going on in San Francisco, you know, a lot of talent um, and and a lot of the investors are actually also in the city as well as the valley. And if they're not, they're opening up in the city. And and more than anything, if you're going to move halfway across the world to California, then why don't you you sh- you really need to try check out the city for a couple of years at least just just you know go and tick the box and say you've done right. it and then move out. 
so that that and then in the end we just found we just lucky we just found a, a place that we really liked and 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 um, it went from there um, I think practically speaking what I find is anyone that I might want to talk to in the Bay Area either is in the city or if they're not they come into the city regularly so you can just say they'll say oh I'm going to be in the city next Wednesday and I could just meet them then whereas right. if you were not in the city you would probably end up having to drive into the city quite often um, and then f fundamentally, I've just really enjoyed living here. So having been here now for three years, three and a half years, um, we, we've, we, we just, you know, we like it so much that uh, much better than I expected and uh, wouldn't want to move. Okay. So now you you are not thinking about going uh, down to Mountain no. View or to no. uh, other places? Uh, no, and, and of course, I, 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 travel, I travel down there and see people there. But So that's great. But I, I definitely enjoy living in the city and will keep living here. Awesome. Cool. Any any other key takeaway that you'd like to share about the company and your path that we were not able to cover before we go to the last segments uh, of the show, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I think this is just something, the space that we're in is something which is not widely recognized in the world, uh, but you know, 80% of global trade, 80% of GDP goes through the supply chain. Um, it doesn't go straight from a manufacturer to the customer. It goes through distributors, retailers, wholesalers, you know, dealers, resellers, you, you name it. And we've been talking about supply chain digitization for 20 years, but the fact is it still doesn't really exist. You know, all of the tech and investment has gone into that very thin layer of business to consumer or business to business. The entire kind of supply chain behind that is still virtually on paper right. and fax machines and EDI and this type of thing. So so really what we're saying is is we're we're building a, a, a complete kind of collaboration platform for the supply chain to work better together so it can serve customers. We started with this rebate space, which is is huge. And, you know, rebates are the currency of the supply chain. They drive behavior. They get partners aligned. Um, so so we're really putting that on the map. And I mean, literally, G2 have created a category or are creating a category this month for what we're doing. You know, it's taken so, this long, but they're doing it now. You know, Gartner, they've just produced a market guide, which mentions this. They hadn't done until now. So this is genuinely um, category creation. And uh, that's what we're doing. Sounds super exciting. And, and congratulations for for the journey so far. And uh, amazing, amazing path. So let's go to the last segment of the show where we kind of have here a, a quick question and answer uh, dynamic. So if you'd have the opportunity to have a coffee with, with Andrew in December of 2016, uh, when he decided to move from the services organization to the product organization, what advice would you offer to your younger Andrew? Yeah, I think it would be um, that you know, you need to be very intentional about what you're doing, have a lot of clarity on what you're trying to achieve, because there's so many different ways to build a company and, um, you know, different routes you can take. So you, you need to be very deliberate and clear and intentional about that. Uh, I think, as you can see, it's worked very well so far, and we've had a really good kind of three years. Uh, so it definitely is, it was the right thing to do. And I think having that focus and having it, like you said earlier, having the courage to kind of jump in and do that and focus and it's always hard to turn other things away and say no and you know uh, you know shut things down that, that's against human nature but but I think that that can be the right thing to do uh, if you if you have a lot of focus and intention about where you want to where you want to get to absolutely to have, to have clarity about your narrative uh, of the future and being able to be an evangelist about that narrative across the company right yes what are you the most proud of? On your journey so far yeah I and mean, i think we we have made a lot of people successful so um we we've certainly let's talk again about customers first like i said for me you know customers do come first and uh we've got a lot of very very successful customers that have, have used and are using our products to to get substantial returns on on their revenue their profitability uh, as well as actually making their life a lot easier. So that's the more subjective stuff, but they're, they're, you know, it's really helped to free them up from the kind of agony of Excel spreadsheets and that type of thing. Um, we've also made our employees successful. We've had a lot of people start at the bottom at junior positions and work their way right up, and they've got had very successful, rewarding careers. Um, 
you know, I definitely, I, I want to make our investors successful as well. And and there's no doubt you can imagine the Series A and the Series B, you know, that we've already kind of done quite well. And, and Series C is still quite early days, but that that will be good as well. So, yeah, I think I think I, I'm certainly proud that we are making an impact, a positive impact, and and just creating value and success for all of those all of those stakeholders. Love it. Worst advice ever received. I mean, I think this is a bit of a tough one. I, c I can't think of anything instantly. Um, I think, again, the mindset I came from was was kind of uh, one of just ignorance of how to build a, a company of scale and much more about things like you have to be profitable on day one. Uh, you know, you can't invest in in, in growth um, or, or, you know, you need to be extremely kind of cautious about that and and and, and that you know um investors are bad <laughs> i mean you know there's only people are kind of terrified and saying oh no you can't we can't we can't bring in an investor or we can't have any dilution you know we can't have any we can't bring in i think that's bad advice i think for me someone said this to me this is about making the pie bigger so it's not about it's not about giving some of the pie away right. or having less of the pie this is about actually making a bigger pie uh, you issue new stock and then you raise capital and mm -hmm. then you invest and you build a bigger company. So I think bad advice about don't don't raise capital or don't deal with investors. And um, I think uh, you said earlier, a lot of people don't think big. Uh, I think uh, constantly people are trying to say no or shut you down or get you to think smaller or telling you it's not possible. And uh, that's not good advice. You can definitely right. achieve. You can achieve something big if you put your mind to it. That's great. That's all you all we all we want here at, at the Scale Up Valley podcast is to promote this mindset that and even if we are not able to to get there, at least we learn and uh, we never ever give up of, of trying to get there, right? So it's it's better to move our standards up instead of moving our dreams uh down. <laughs> yeah, I think this is really important that you say that as well, that that there's a lot of obstacles and and a, and a lot of uh, you know pushback and uh, you know people saying no everywhere every day and and failures there's 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 a lot of failure and I think it's those people that just keep going and that most people do give up you know most of us do give up you know quite quickly really but I think history shows us that those that really just are able to keep going. Uh, will actually get to success and, and and that's what i've certainly learned that so far yeah and uh we will skip the favorite movie series and, and the <laughs> favorite podcast because i know that you are not confident about your recommendations there so let's close <laughs> with your favorite book oh uh so one of my uh real favorites and we were talking about clarity earlier uh so um, I really like uh, Patrick Lencioni, who wrote Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and a lot of yeah. people, I'm sure, are familiar with that. But I've, actually, my favorite book that he wrote is um, The Advantage. And The Advantage is all about creating clarity and organizational health and how organizational health is a big competitive differentiator. Because let's face yeah. it, most companies do not have very good organizational health. So that that is a really easy to read and compelling kind of um, book which talks through how to create that organizational clarity with with a few simple questions love it and another recommendation that i have there is is really another book that very few people are aware about the same author which is the five temptations of a ceo uh, i really enjoy that one as uh, as well cool andrew it has been a pleasure to have you on the show congrats again for for the journey and you are always invited to come back to to keep sharing uh, the next chapter of uh, chapters of growth Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed the conversation, Mike. So thanks for having me. Likewise. And to our community, thanks for being there. We keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.